Hello everybody, welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello, I'm your host Simon. What happens here is one of my writers in this event, Kevin, thank you Kevin, has written me a script. It's called The Three X Murders, or Three Times Murders, I guess. The former here on this show, uh, also, if you're watching on YouTube, this is a podcast. If you're listening on a podcast, it also goes out on YouTube. I've never read this before. This is a brand new script to me. I've never heard of the 3X murders. And uh, yeah, I'm going to read it. I'm going to uh, add my thoughts when appropriate. Then afterwards, Jen, our wonderful editor, is going to add some images, some music, some sounds, all of that fine stuff that polishes up what Kevin and I have made. So let's just get into it, shall we? Oh, if you want to leave a review, if you're listening as a podcast, that's always welcome. I see them ticking up. I hear, I see other podcasters reading their reviews, and I always forget. I don't think I've ever done it. I'm not sure I ever will, but I still appreciate your reviews. I read them and enjoy them, unless they're bad. Then I don't enjoy them and I just feel sad inside. Anyway... I'm sure none of us are strangers to getting a little frisky in the back seat of a car. <laughs> Interesting start today, Kevster! It's a time-honored tradition dating all the way back to prehistoric times when a young Fred Finstone would take his steady gal Wilma to the drive-in theater. Well, I don't, I don't think I ever saw that in the Flintstones. Well, maybe it's not that of an older tradition, but it certainly existed for as long as cars have been widely available to the public. More specifically, to horny young teenagers. <laughs> getting out of their parents' houses. For most of us, the biggest threat in such a situation is coitus interruptus, brought upon by a police officer knocking on the window and politely requesting that you move your car. Embarrassed and downtrodden, there is no course of action but to comply and to be glad that you didn't just get signed up as a registered sex offender. Can, I guess you can be put on that sex offenders list. That sex offenders list is diverse. I feel like they should have two, because I've talked about before. Like, I, I don't know if this applies. This must just be an American thing where it's like you can get put on the sex offenders register for having like a pee in public. And it's like, shit, <laughs> I'd be on that list so many times. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I need to pee. I'll just pull over and have a pee here. No one's around. I'm making sure no one's looking. I'm not. I don't want, you know, I don't want people to see me as much as they don't. I don't want them to. They don't want to see me. That makes sense, right? But uh, I feel like there's that. And there's, you know, you know, getting a little frisky in your car. And then there's like predators. <laughs> there's a difference. Certainly not a pleasant, pleasant experience, but hardly a newsworthy event. Now imagine that the knock on your window isn't a police officer and instead you find yourself staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. Oh, uh-oh. This isn't a chance encounter either. You weren't just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're exactly where and when he knew you would be. This man has targeted you specifically, and at least in his mind, you know exactly why. Uh-oh. The Don Juan Grocery Man of College Point. It was June 1930. Less than a year after the stock market crash, the worst of the Great Depression had not yet fully gripped America, but people were already feeling the strain on the economy. With disposable income at an all-time low, it's no wonder that so many people were frequenting secluded hookup spots in their cars. It was the most fun that they could have for free, and it seemed relatively harmless, so long as the girl's father never found out. Enter one Joseph Mozinitsky. Mozinitsky. Mozinsky. Enter one Joseph Mazinski, a 39-year-old grocery man from New York. On Wednesday, June the 11th, Joseph had driven to a secluded lane near Whitstone Landing in the College Point district of Queens with his girlfriend of two years. It should have been harmless fun, but there were just a few issues. 
First, car sex is a young man's game. Granted, cars were larger back then, so the potential contortionism and resulting back pain may not have been a concern. More notably was that Joseph's girlfriend of two years was the 19-year-old Catherine May. Wait, he, well, she's not the son of the, the daughter of this Mazinski person. So that I immediately alarm. It's the, it's it's either the dad or the boyfriend. And seeing as the dad's in the car, uh, the boyfriend's in the car, it's got to be the dad, right? But apparently not. I'll let you do the math yourself. Even if we assume that they had refrained from any inappropriate behavior until Catherine turned 18, there was only one other quan. There was still one other quandary. The man she was seeing was not only 20 years her senior, but was also married. Wait, so what are they doing in a car? Like, didn't we just say the point of the the, the car people getting frisky in cars is because they're young and they don't have anywhere else to go? If you're a 40 year old man, I don't know. Just get a hotel room. You've probably got a job, <laughs> right? The couple began their session of making out and heavy petting when an unknown man approached the car. He ordered Joseph to get in the front seat and start the car, taking his place in the back next to Catherine. No sooner had the car started than the man fired his gun next to Joseph's right ear. When he spun his head around, the second bullet went right through his mouth. The man then ordered Catherine out of the car and rummaged through Joseph's pockets. From them, he removed a few pieces of paper, which he set on fire outside of the car. Okay. The assassin thought of himself as a gentleman, so the papers he burned bore Catherine's name on them. He didn't want the police to get her involved in this situation, as she was an innocent victim in all of this and not his target. Ever the gentleman, the assassin, then raped Catherine against the side of the car. Holy <laughs> It's like, I don't want you to get in trouble, but I am going to assault you. What the f***? I dare not venture to guess how he rationalized this act, suffice to say that he must have felt entitled to it for being such a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing with these people. Look, he's breaking into someone's car and shooting someone in the face. This, the, the fact that he's not really got his head screwed on quite right, is not exactly surprising, is it? The gunman, now oozing with that incel energy, asked Catherine for her home address. He walked her to the nearest bus stop, and the two boarded together. While they sat on the bus, the man handed Catherine a note, warning her not to read it until the next day. When the bus arrived at the terminal, he escorted her onto a trolley home, and the two went their separate ways. Why, when you're on the bus, wouldn't you be like, uh, hey, uh, bus driver and just everybody, this man just murdered someone in my car. And at that point, oh, does it? he still has a gun though, doesn't he? So I guess you could just be like, I'm just going to shut up. I would, in that position, and I'm not doing this out of being some hero, I'd just be like, yo, I've seen that guy's face, he's got a gun, I'm going to end up in a ditch somewhere. And him get, taking me on that bus, I'd be like, this is the error, this is the time. If we get off this bus, I'm, I'm in a ditch. I'm just going to be sh in a shallow little grave. I'd be, not because I'm a hero, just because I'm a, I don't want to die. When the bus arrived at the terminal, he escorted her onto a trolley home, and the two went their separate ways. Oh my god. <laughs> Are you insane? She saw your face. She saw you commit a murder. I mean, dude, what are you up to? I don't want to say it, but you gotta... You, I don't want... No, it's like, oh my god. You murdered someone, and you raped her, and you're just gonna let her go? That's insane. I mean, I'm very happy this happens, but Jesus, come on. With the man now gone, Catherine opens up the note. Stamped, not handwritten, in red ink was the message, Joseph Mazinski, 3X, 3X907. She was too terrified to go to the police, both for her safety and because she didn't want her family to find out that she'd become entangled with a married man. Catherine returned home, hoping to never speak a word of this to anyone. She's 19, you could just not tell them. Right? And I guess the press would find out. This would come out, wouldn't it? It would come out. But I mean, there's a point 
where it's like that getting someone in prison for murder and rape is oh, you're sliding into that victim blaming simon don't do that but i do feel there's somewhat of a responsibility to go to the police to report especially crimes as 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 terrible as this that was not to be however when authorities found joseph's body early thursday they were able to track catherine down from the blood-drenched coat that she'd abandoned in the car police arrived at her house with the stained jacket and she immediately admitted to have been there with joseph when he died she freely gave up her entire story and handed them the note adding that she did not believe that he could have written it at the scene the police weren't having any of it and they were confident that catherine had been involved in planning the murder of her lover she was taken into the station for questioning and this is why it's always good to get a lawyer like even if you're you know there's some crime and you definitely haven't done it uh always you know lawyers are there they'll look after you they'll look after your interests get one Catherine was held on $50,000 bail, that's almost $850,000 in today's money, because she was a material witness. Even if rape kits existed back then, I don't imagine the police would have given her story much credence. She was a woman living in 1930 that was known to be morally depraved enough to engage in a sexual relationship with a married man, so any evidence of sexual assault would have been chalked up to her own questionable character and disregard. The past was the worst. Yes, this is insane. This is insane. It's yeah it's the 19 year old girl's fault that the man who is 40 years old is having an affair it's definitely the woman's fault this is this is such a attitude in 1930s what the fuck? hours after the in police and she was raped police what the fuck? after hours of police interrogation catherine became frustrated and decided to change her story in the hopes of expediting her release probably not a good idea when they already consider you an accomplice she declared that the murder had been conducted by italian mobster alberto lombardo from manhattan it took very little time for the police to disprove this accusation oh my god are you making yourself look guilty holy f is your lawyer not sitting there being like uh oh, what the f are you doing what exactly are you doing right now because this is a dumb dumb idea probably because that person did not exist but catherine was no longer interested in their bullshit. Sounds like they would not be interested in her bullshit. She admitted to fabricating that story and went back to her original account of events. Police continued to push her, still believing she had known the assailant, but she calmly stood by her story, refusing to be confused by their interrogation methods. While I thought this was entirely a product of the internet age, Catherine began correcting the poor grammar of the police investigators. Considering the night that she had just had and the questionable nature of many police interrogations, something I can only imagine was even worse back in the 1930s, to possess both the mental and emotional fortitude to stand up to her inquisitors... Inquisitors? inquisitors like that means that surely catherine was an absolute legend with balls of steel yeah uh, it's fairly ballsy isn't it ultimately she was deemed not a suspect and released although if i was ella i'd be like yo catherine stop correcting their grammar it doesn't make them like you more it makes them like you less especially because you're a woman and it's the 1930s catherine oh my god but the police had a theory. A former admirer of hers named Joseph Massette was held for questioning in Chicago. I'm not fluent in 1930s puritanical journalist slang, but like admirer, but that's as clear as any sources made their relationship. The next morning, newspapers would break the story of the murder. The Times, not concerned with the death of a random grocer, printed a single paragraph on the topic. The Evening Journal, however, was filled with moral outrage. They printed the story on the front page of the paper, not because they were concerned that there may be a murderous psychopath on the loose because the couple had been caught flagrant delicto as they put it 
I'm assuming that means having sex. I don't know. It's a it's an old timey word. Tabloids would go on to describe him as the Don Juan grocery man of College Point. The Evening Journal also noted that Joseph was believed to have two mistresses with whom he would engage in these unsavory acts in the car. This must have been a very charming grocer. <laughs> Damn. Uh, they would go on to print a correction in this to this statement, but it wasn't in their own words. The letters begin. Really, what's the point of murdering anyone if you can't write letters about it to your local newspaper? <laughs> Perhaps the assassin was familiar enough with both papers to know how much interest each one would have in the story, because it was the editor of the Evening Journal that would receive a letter on his desk that afternoon. The letter read, Kindly print this letter in your paper for Mazinski's friends. By doing this, you may save their lives. We do not want any more shooting unless we have to. The man behind... The letter contained a code intended for Mazinski's supposed friends, and it was 3X, the man behind the gun. Now, editors receive letters like this all of the time, so it was thrown into the crackpot letters pile and duly ignored. Had he paid more attention, he might have noticed that the letter was postmarked roughly eight hours before the murder took place. The next day, the editor of the Evening Journal received another letter in the same handwriting, this one much longer. I can't blame him for not looking at that letter, the date on that letter and stuff exactly, because it probably arrives, he just reads it. When was the last time you looked at a date on a letter you got? It's always like, well, I assume it was written recently because I just got it. Um, and obviously this is after it happens. And I'm sure he's got tons of crackpot letters of people saying all sorts of crazy the next day, the editor of the Evening Journal received another letter in the same handwriting, this one much longer. It contained many details of the case, including the aforementioned correction regarding Joseph's extramarital affairs. I mentioned earlier that car sex was a young man's game. Apparently, it was also a young girl's game. Quote, Gentlemen, for your information, the young lady, Miss C. May, involved in the case is innocent and a victim of unfortunate circumstances. Mazinski was nothing but a rascal, a dirty rat. Not two women, as stated in the paper, but six and two young girls, one 14 and 15, were with him in that same place. I am the agent of a secret international order, and when I met Mazinski that night, it was to get from him certain documents, but unfortunately, they were not in his possession at the time. This guy sounds like... So this guy is having a bunch of affairs and is also a predator and... But I also get the feeling that this guy, the guy with the gut, the, the, the murderer, is also a bit loopy because he's saying I'm part of some international order. But people who are like assassins for international orders, they're not going to be writing letters to the press. So I think this guy's got a screw loose and... He was looking for those documents that he wanted to burn, I guess, and he just ended up burning some other stuff because he's not quite right in the head. That's my theory so far. Probably, he's probably partially right about the affairs and stuff, and then he's also partially insane. The letter went on to give code names for the three documents. One was political in nature, one military, and one commercial. The writer went on to accurately describe the make and model of the gun used to kill Joseph, as well as give the warning that if the documents were not returned by noon Monday, two days later, that 14 more of Mazinski's friends will join him. The 14 were described as being, the th being 13 men and one woman. Yeah, 
Once again, the letter was signed 3X, the man behind the gun. This time, however, the 3X was preceded by an inverted V followed by a regular V, both underscored, a symbol the killer would explain later. It really is helpful when assassins tell the press their code name and the secret organization they work for. It takes a lot of the guesswork out of policing. And that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like if you're part of some assassin's order, you don't go around being like, yeah, I'm part of that secret assassin order that you've never heard of. It'd be like people be, it's like, yeah, I'm a spy. People be like, you're not a spy. Because spies don't say they're spies. Spies say they, they're an import-export or they're a diplomat. It's like, no, you're a spy. Whereas the guy's like, I'm a spy. It's like, no, you're not. Or maybe it's a complicated double bluff. The second letter was written on stationery from the Civil Service Bureau at College Point, where Catherine worked. While the original letter could have been a prank, this one was clearly much more significant. The letter was turned over to the police. It was thought that it may have originated from a friend of Catherine's in a misguided attempt to help her. However, 3X had given a deadline, and time was about to run out. The Second Murder It was now Monday evening, hours after the deadline that had been handed out by 3X. A 26-year-old radio technician named Noel Soley had taken his sweetie out for a romantic and amorous evening, which is to say that they were parked by a desolate auto junkyard. <laughs> ah, yes. The auto junkyard. How romantic. If you're, if you're in your car, go park somewhere nice at least. I don't know, in movies, just go park over and you've got the view of the city. Isn't that nice? His companion was Betty Ring, the daughter of a policeman in Queens. This time, the tryst was much less scandalous. They were described as having once been very friendly. Again, take that 1930s phrasing however you want. I think we all know what that means. But she married someone else. The marriage was short-lived, however, and they were now seeing each other again. Still, the Daily News did report this as cheating since she was originally married less than a year before this event. Oh, the past. That's not how it works. And you could bet if it, if it, was, if it was a man. They'd be like, oh, he's still married. Nah, that's not cheating. He's the man. <laughs> Holy sh**. It's like, you, I always think about this. The, the one point of reference I have is like the 1960s because of Mad Men and like the sh** that they got up to, the dudes. And then it's like, this was 30 years before even that. So, oh my God. A man approached the windows of the car, pointed a flashlight at Noel and demanded his driver's license. Noel asked what was wrong, and the man walked to the back of the car, flickering, flicking his light in Morse code. When Noel asked what he was doing, the man said he was signaling to his friends on the hill that he did not need assistance. The man asked if he knew Joseph Mazinski. When he said no, he was shot in the mouth. Despite the wound, he was able to profess, I'm not the man you're looking for. The man walked to the rear of the car and shone his flashlight on the license plate before walking back to the window. You're the guy we want, all right. You're going to get what Joe got and then he fired a bullet directly into Noel's skull. With the target now deceased, 3X again began rummaging around his target's pockets. He took a piece of paper and proclaimed, I got it. He then turned his attention to Betty, reaching over to try and kiss her. When he did, he saw a medallion of St. Joseph around her neck. He pulled back and asked, Are you Catholic? When she confirmed she was, he said, Well, it's lucky for you that you are. I wouldn't hurt you for anything. God is the only one I fear. Yeah, mate. Just because you're not going to rape someone who's, who's Catholic, if you believe in Catholicism and you are yourself Catholic, I think God's also going to be pretty pissed off that you raped someone who, who was a person. However, isn't Catholicism the one where it's like, he'll be like, oh yeah, no, I've raped and murdered. That's okay. Just go to confession. Confess everything. Say like all your Hail Marys. And uh, yeah, you'll be good. It's all good. 
we take Catholicism. Once again, 3X escorted the young woman to the bus stop and rode with her for the first leg of her return journey. Before parting ways, he handed Betty a slip of paper similar to the one that was given to Catherine. The paper had solely stamped on it in red ink, followed by 3X. Betty did not go to the police until after Noel's body was found, once again, likely out of fear. 3X was a bit of an impatient attention whore, so he was up bright and early the next morning to check the newspapers. His crusade was not getting the publicity he desired, so he wrote and mailed two more letters, both postmarked before 8am that Tuesday morning. The first letter was sent to the police, the other one was sent to the Evening Post. The letter to the police was addressed to Inspector Gallagher and Lieutenant Smith and contained two empty bullet casings. It read, for your information, one more of Jay Mazinski's friends was sent to meet him. V5 Sowley was shot to death near Floral Park, not very far from the police station. I enclose the two empty shells. Some of our money was found on his person and the NY document. The girl was, as in the case of Miss May, put aboard a bus and sent home, but no clues were left for you this time. Thirteen more men and one woman will go if they do not make peace with us and stop bleeding us dry this guy's losing his mind i'm like reading that and i'm confused and i'm like what are you talking about this guy's this guy's not right so yeah the investigation begins the police had already found Noel's body by the time the letter arrived. Ballistics experts were able to confirm what they already knew. Both Noel and Joseph were killed by the same gun and that the empty casings would have been correct for bullets for that gun. What had started with just a random murder was now becoming a sensational drama. It was the type of crime that normally grips the public consciousness. It had multiple murders, a secret international organization, <laughs> allegedly, letters taunting the police, and two young women who were described by contemporary newspapers as attractive far more times in a single article than I'm comfortable with from a legitimate news outlet. Keep it in your pants, Clark Kent. The Evening Journal had finally decided to publish all of the 3X letters, and on the morning of June the 18th, they received another letter. This was the most direct letter thus far. Tonight, one more will go. You may let know that 3X is the man behind the gun. He asked for no quarter, but will give none. On June the 18th at 9pm, I will be at College Point to get WRV8." End quote. Mothers locked up their daughters, and all of the usual makeout spots were abandoned that night. The police were out in full force. They were determined to catch 3X. A reported force of 425 detectives and 2,000 patrolmen were deployed to try and find the manman terrorizing their borough. There was no murder that night. Of course, 3X wasn't going to be easy to find. He had said exactly where he'd be, and he had allowed not one, but two witnesses to see his face for an extended period of time. The police were armed with the descriptions they'd been given. But let's just say there's a reason eyewitness testimony is considered extremely unreliable. Both women had seen this man up close and for much longer than a fleeting amount. They both rode on the bus with him. These are the descriptions they each gave, each description being given the morning after the woman's encounter with him. Catherine described 3X as 40 years old, 5 foot 6 inches, 125 pounds, pale complexion, wrinkled face, dark clothes, dark grey soft hat, speaks with foreign accents. Short, simple, to the point, with some pretty specific specific details. Betty's description of 3X was 30 years old, 6 feet, 166 feet? That's a 4 inch difference between 5 foot 6 and 6 feet. No. How many feet? I'm so European. How many uh, is it 12? Who am I? I'm 5'11 and I'm an inch off, I'm like just an inch off 6 feet. Okay. 
that's a huge difference. That's like a six inch difference in height. Big brain. 165 pounds, so he's also much heavier. Pale complexion, thin face, sunken cheeks, lanky build, little hump on the bridge of his nose, small eyes, thick lips, peculiar teeth, wore black suit, black bow tie, white shirt, soft white collar, and black fedora hat with telescope, telescope brim. Speaks with accent indicating German extraction. Wore a small round bronze button on the left uh, lapel of coat, marked Rifle Association. These sound like two different people. They agreed that he was a thin, pale German man with a hat, so that's something at least. The difference between 40 with wrinkles and 30 is pretty remarkable, though, as is 6 feet versus 5 foot 6. Speaking with a German accent in 1930s Queens was also not as identifying as characteristic as one might expect. This was the composite that the police sketch artist came up with based on their descriptions. Okay, so, uh, well, Jen can show an image on screen now for our viewers. Um, for everyone listening, it is a very shadowy picture of a guy wearing a big hat with a thin face and i don't know why but they've given him a regular tie even though the woman specifically said bow tie um it's not super helpful to be honest because i imagine a lot of people in the 1930s looked like this they wore suits and wore hats and were thin from hunger <laughs> I appreciate the sketch artist's attention to detail with how the hat would obscure 3X's face in shadows. It shows a real love for their craft and dedication to authenticity. It also does cool to show anything about his face that might be considered identifiable. I can say with absolute certainty that both the police and the average citizen will understand that people are harder to see in the dark, and this was not nearly as helpful as it could have been. Also, the sketch had him wearing a necktie instead of a bow tie, so there's that too. Yes, a bit lazy, isn't it? She's like, yeah, he's wearing a bow tie. It's like, okay, bow tie's real complicated to draw. I'm just going to draw a regular tie. <laughs> I'm also not very good at faces, so I put most of it in shadow. Armed with these descriptions, the police set out rounding up anyone they could find who vaguely resembled either description, but Catherine and Betty were unable to positively ID any of them. Yeah, like, sketch artist stuff is really tricky. Like, it's going to be really hard to have someone sketch someone you met. But then again, when there's, like, the lineup and they do the people in a row, you just be like, that guy. Because it's super easy to recognize a face you've seen before, but it's really hard to, like, name the specific details, right? They did have other evidence besides just the two eyewitness accounts, however. Inside Joseph's pockets had been a blood-stained baseball pool ticket, basically a receipt from gambling on baseball. It was big money, too. He had wagered $2,500 and won $3,700 in the 1930s. If those are not inflation-adjusted figures, that is a wild amount of money. His winnings in today's money would have been over $60,000. He had also recently deposited $8,000 in the bank, roughly the equivalent of $135,000 today. This is a huge amount of money. Those are massive amounts of cash, especially for the Great Depression. Noel also had a wad of cash rolled up in a bloody magazine in his car. In his pockets, police found a newspaper clipping about the death of Joseph. Stamped on it in red ink was the name Mozinski, and written in pencil in the margin were the words, Here's How. The police also investigated the possibility that the murderer was an escaped patient from the nearby state hospital for the, insa for the insane at Creedmoor. Yeah, I would have definitely, this would have been one thing I checked into, like medical records, people nearby, maybe not escaped, but this guy's clearly got something wrong with him. So that'd be a good place to start. Also, regular criminal records. This makes perfect sense as a lead to follow given how insane 3X's proposed reality was, but the asylum had not experienced a breakout. Catherine and Betty were taken there to inspect every patient and staff member, but they were confident that it was none of them. <laughs> and staff members just like, yeah, while well, we're at it, we might as well look at the non-insane people as well. That's what. That's how good our lead is. 
Unfortunately, the simply solution had just been ruled out completely. By Thursday, the 19th of June, these murders were on the front page of every newspaper and tabloid. The Times, which had previously only dedicated a short paragraph to the death of Joseph Mazinski, was now covering this on the front page. The letters from 3X were being reproduced in mass for the viewable public to for the viewing public to read. At long last, 3X was finally getting the attention he had been demanding. With the promised murder not taking place the night before, naturally, it was time to send the Evening Journal another letter. That afternoon, they received a letter which read, WRV8 of College Point has returned the Philadelphia XV346 to me tonight after reading your paper. Also $37,000 of blackmail money, thanks to God, if I may use his name. $37,000. We were talking, that's got, that's like a million dollars or something crazy. In today's money. This letter also listed the code designations of the 14 individuals that he had been marked for death. There were initials next to the six that were spared because of the return of this document, but the other eight he wanted to give no clues about. He also made sure to note which of the now spared individuals was the woman that had been set to die at his hands. I really could have sworn, he said, that all of this was tied to a secret organization. Yes, I again... <laughs> It's like, it's not a secret organization if you keep telling everybody about it. Like, you're not a spy if you keep telling everybody about it. We've discussed this. Still, he reminded everyone that there was still the matter of the one document and $39,000 that were still missing, since 3X was already so forthcoming with all this information. Perhaps he could have given even more specifics, but for now... He had to take a road trip. The same day, John Mazinski, Joseph's older brother, received a letter from 3X. John was a plumber living in Philadelphia, which is precisely where the letter was postmarked from. The letter threatened his life if he did not return the document and money, or if he did not tell those who had it to do so. John claimed to have absolutely no idea what any of this was about and denied any involvement or knowledge of secret organizations. He was given police protection while all of Philadelphia awaited in earnest for the killer to strike. This guy's just lost his mind, right? <laughs> he's, he's like half right about some stuff that he's spun into some wild ass conspiracy. A farewell to arms. Two days later, on Saturday, June the 20th, the police received a long letter from 3X. I'd give more of an introduction, but as lawyers love to say, res ipsa locuta. The thing speaks for itself. Oh my god, here we go. This is a long-ass letter. I hope it's more readable than your previous crazy sh**. Dear Sir, the last document, NJ4344, returned to us the 19th at 9. My mission is ended. There is no further cause for worry. The first sign means A, the Supreme Tribunal of the Order, the second V, its special agents. The two combined form the Red Diamond of Russia, a secret organization all over the world. Anyone breaking its rules is marked for death. These men were dismissed for treason. They were all our friends, but came in contact with a gang of blackmailers and a drug ring and turned against us. One of them stole the documents mentioned before, and they tried to use them for blackmailing our men here. Most of us are soldiers, and every nation in the world is represented in our ranks. Word came to us at the Supreme Council in Russia of the peril in the US. Twelve of us picked one card. Mine was the King of Diamonds. I was the one selected to punish and inflict death if necessary. I have patiently waited. I have warned them all of danger. Instead of heeding the warning, they answered me by blackmail. They were requested many times the return of the papers, but refused to surrender render them. It was when Mazinski died that they found out who I am. Now it is all over. <laughs> this guy is living in his crazy ass fantasy land.
Well, that was a nice secret organization they once had. It seems 3X gave away the entire story of who he was and why he was there. He claimed to have been randomly selected for this mission and did not want to kill unless necessary. My favorite part of this story is how believable it is that he is a member of an elite secret organization of ex-military personnel that has no problem advertising their existence in newspapers. And let us not forget, this deadly organization always asks treasonous members who are blackmailing them to politely stop it before they complete their assassinations. Yeah, it's just insane. It's just, it's like it just none of this adds up. None of it makes any sense. And it just feels like this guy's, is this what, is this schizophrenia, like paranoid schizophrenia or whatever, where you construct your own fantasy land about what's really going on in the world? And this is what's wrong with this guy. It's crazy. The letter continued. Your policemen are brave men, only they need training. The police have fish eyes. They have always been wrong from beginning to end. That is why they have lost from the beginning to end. For two reasons. One, I have stated to you. The other, they are too slow. I am deeply sorry for having stained your country with blood, but let this be a warning to all concerned. Treason of one word means death. The next time, no mercy will be shown. Death only will be the penalty. This is final. Wait, but you killed... What do you mean? <laughs> next time it'll be death. The first two times it was death. What are you talking about? I don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about you know what we want you to know quiet your people and tell them 3x is no more here we can witness the fragile ego of 3x one of the witnesses described him at one point as having fish eyes and he seems to have been deeply hurt by this attack on his appearance so he recycled the insult to use on the police <laughs> it's like you're fat no you're fat <laughs> it's like a child's brain you've got fish eyes no you've got fish eyes while this egomaniacal vigilante was writing his tell-all biography to the police, he probably should have included an apology to Catherine for the sexual assault. In previous letters, he commented on how strong and courageous the two women were, yet he never comments on his own actions towards them the way he does the murders, as if he doesn't feel that they're in any way wrong or deserving of an apology. There was one final piece of the letter that remained. Do not let anyone fool you. If any more letters come, they are fakes. I am leaving today on my way back to Russia. Please note, I do not ride USSR. We do not recognize them. There is no one else to begin trouble. It is settled. The police weren't buying this for a single second. They dismissed the story as a smokescreen for the killer's true goals and intentions, and did not believe that the killings would cease. Police increased their efforts and patrols to try and track down the elusive 3X, but to no avail. Fruitless Investigations The manhunt went on for a full 19 days, longer than the time between the first murder and the final letter from 3X. Finally, the police commissioner voiced his opinion that 3X was telling the truth and that his mission was complete. The patrols ended, but the investigations did not. Countless leads were followed and tactics employed, but the police continued to come up empty-handed. They brought in over 50 men for questioning, but all of them were rejected by Catherine and Betty. The closest they came to something substantial was the interrogation of a Russian sexton named Nicholas Laroche. He was a narcotics and ad addict who somewhat resembled the descriptions of 3X, and his handwriting, obtained from a forged narcotics prescription, bore some similarities to the handwritten 3X notes. It took Catherine and Betty half an hour to decide, but they agreed that this was not the man. 
they were looking for. Countless letters and threats continued to flow into news outlets and the police, and the mayor even received threatening phone calls from someone purporting to be 3X. Despite all the threats and warnings, no more murders took place. Further, after the final letter from 3X, none of the other letters contained the inverted Y and regular V before 3X, the symbol of the Red Diamond of Russia that had appeared in the genuine 3X letters. Okay, so they were fakes. I guess the police didn't release that detail so they knew when something was real or fake. That's pretty crazy. Eventually, interest in the case waned, despite having many of the hallmarks of cases that capture the public's information for decades, like the Zodiac Killer and the Son of Sam, the 3X murders were fading into obscurity. It wasn't until six years later that any interest in the case would re-emerge. In 1936, a young man came forward to confess to the 3X murders. Predictably, he gave many conflicted accounts of events with lots of incorrect details across all the various tellings. Furthermore, Catherine and Betty both immediately dismissed him as the murderer, with Betty saying, The man you want was older in 1930 than this man is today. The young man was deemed a mental case and was submitted to the facility at Creedmoor. <laughs> that was the last lead there would be in this case, and to this day, the identity of 3X remains a complete and total mystery. That's disappointing, because <laughs> hoping he got busted. More money, more problems. So, did 3X belong to a secret international group known as the Red Diamond of Russia that contains members all over the world despite no one in recorded history having ever heard of this group's mention outside of 3X's references in this particular case? In a word, no. In two words, f no. In three words, Definitely f***ing not. <laughs> it's just absurd. The guy was mentally ill. Even in 1930, no one believed this. Hats off to the general populace back then for assuming that he was a madman and that the Red Diamond was a mythical creation. The last thing Americans in the Great Depression needed was to deal with another QAnon conspiracy. But if his entire story was a lie, then who was he? Yeah, I do believe, like today with the internet and all this people would be like, he is part of a Q conspiracy. Definitely. I already said that the mystery is unsolved, but there are still things we know, and there were a lot of theories. Probably the most important things we know are the things that 3X knew. He knew about Joseph Mazinski. He knew a lot about Joseph Mazinski. He knew where Joseph went to have his affairs, how many women he'd been with, where his out-of-state brother lived, and so on. 3X spoke of him in the papers as being a rascal, presumably much more insulting in 1930, and a rat but he didn't seem to speak of Noel at all. This would indicate that either Joseph was the real target and Noel was just an unfortunate victim used to publicize the elaborate cover story, or that at least Joseph was a much more personal target for the killer. 3X seemed overtly desperate for publicity. It probably didn't matter how ridiculously unbelievable his cover story was, he just needed people to be focused on the myth and the possibility of a mass murderer to give Joseph the proper amount of scrutiny. We also know that 3X was, for lack of a better term, a pathetic incel. He liked to speak highly of women, but he clearly had no respect for them at all. He also had some strange religious and moral code of his own making. Papers at the time referred to him as a cabalistic zealot who believes himself consecrated by some deity of his own fancy to the extermination of lovers. Uh, language was so different in the past. That sounds so fancy by today's term. I'm like, okay, so he means this. I feel like nowadays we just use simple words. Like, how would this be in simple? He considers himself a god, and he kills people. <laughs> I much prefer it today. It's a lot easier. A less important fact is that 3X had fish eyes. 
This isn't particularly relevant, I just wanted to hurt his feelings. It does definitely feel like something the sketch artists could have done a better job capturing, however. Probably the most relevant piece of evidence is the baseball pool ticket that was found on Joseph's body. Uh, okay, so it's included here. I've got a little picture of it. Um, Jen, I'm sure we'll put it on the screen. Okay. And Kevin asked me, does something immediately jump out at you, Simon? I don't know. I don't really know what any of this means. I don't really... I don't really know how gambling on this sort of thing works. So he paid 2500 and he received... Oh, I see. I see. I'm not so stupid. There's a 3x on here in two places. 3x067 and then just 3x. So is this where this guy got his code name from? The original note that 3x handed to Catherine read, Joseph Mazinski, 3x, 3x-907. Uh, the ticket says 067 instead of 907, but that's still really similar. In fact, all the codes for the documents he was allegedly after were strikingly similar to the types of codes printed on baseball lottery tickets. I wish I could take credit for digging this up on my, all on my own, but these facts were right, widely reported and would surely have been investigated by the police. Then again, police said they weren't expecting the third murder to take place on the expertise of several detectives who were acquainted with the effects of the moon on lunatics. So who knows what law enforcement was actually up to. The past was the worst. It's like, I was a full moon, so they could be committing his crimes this night. I think this is just one of those cases where this guy came up with his secret code name because he's, like, not all there. He's just like, yeah, I saw that 3X, so that's my secret code name from this organization that I work for, the, the Russian Red Diamond or whatever. Joseph was known to bet on baseball, and he had just deposited $8,000 into the bank that his family had no way to account for. Noel also had a large sum of money in his car at the time he died. The most likely solution seems to be that the two were targeted for death some, uh, for something related to sports betting. Perhaps they owed money to the wrong people. Given how much money Joseph had deposited, the fact that he had this winning ticket on his person when he died, and, and how much more personal his death felt, maybe his crime was winning too much. Remember, Joe, the house always wins. Wrap up. Nearly a hundred years later, it's highly unlikely that either case will ever be solved. While the Red Diamond of Russia never existed, the murderer and rapist 3X was unfortunately very real. With so much of his own attention placed to his ridiculous cover story, his true motives are almost impossible to determine. Of how strong the evidence is that it was tied to gambling, we can't discount the fact that this was purely a sick, sadistic individual who really did not like adultery. While it's depressing that such a monster could go on and live the rest of his life with no repercussions, at least I could take solace in the fact that he's long dead now. Dismembered Appendices These are all from one page of the news article. Seriously, it's only like 500 words. He killed Mazinski in the arms of the attractive Ms. May with the attractive Catherine May. The Pretty Betty Ring by Ms. May, the attractive... <laughs> Holy it sounds like whoever the journalist is. Uh-oh. This was supposed to be a piece of journalism about two people who were murdered, not an editorial piece on how pleasing to the eye their lovers were. Kindly keep your 1930s era misogyny out of my research. The people coming for murder, despair, and maybe the occasional heist. Not for your chauvinism. The 1930s, man. All right, this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist and an Unsolved One. Thank you so much for being here, listening or watching, however you do it. As I said at the beginning, leave a review. That'd be wonderful if you're listening to the show. If you're on YouTube, comment, subscribe, like, all of that wonderful stuff, and I'll see you next episode.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.